The views that I express on this podcast are mine, and the same for our co-host Juan Pablo. Well, they're his. Listening to Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. Morning, Jason. Good morning or afternoon, I guess. How are you doing today? It's Sunday, having my coffee. Yeah, me too. When it's sunny outside, it's a nice day. And I'm ready to talk about movies. Yeah. So I I mean I would Always. I would love to just have a movie review podcast but i don't feel especially <laughs> qualified to do that but let's start one yeah with the oh well, yeah uh, maybe uh for another conversation um you know usually we record episodes several months in advance uh and today we're trying something a little bit new we want to be a little bit more reactionary to things that are happening that are kind of new and note- noteworthy in our um you know political social pop culture and joker is out and Juan, you haven't seen Joker yet, have you? No, no, I haven't seen it yet. But it's a it's a controversial film, as as you're probably aware. Yeah. So um, yeah, I've seen some stuff on. I've seen some flutters on Twitter. I don't not really. Again, I'm not really sure what the controversy is, but it seems to have it has seems to do with the portrayal of violence and the the sort of story of narrative how this character comes to become you know, violent, I guess. Yeah. And I can try to fill you and anyone else in without giving away spoilers. Um, but we, we thought this would be a good opportunity to, you know, both Juan and I are, um, uh, busy and, uh, sometimes it's hard to do these long form episodes where we have to do a lot of research and prepare notes and things like that. So this is a cool way of, um, one being more responsive to things that are happening. So, um, you know, usually we put an episode out, uh, two or two and a half months after recording, so we don't get a chance to kind of speak to things that are happening uh, in the headlines right now. But uh, now we think we're going to do these uh, episodes that we're going to call reflections and put them out um, occasionally, and uh, that that will allow us to uh, do more or do more of that. And hopefully, you know, if uh, our listeners want to submit feedback, questions, tell us to talk about something, we can always, you know open up the laptop and, and, and do a quick recording and, and get an interesting episode out there. Sounds good. Yeah. So, all right, let's get into it then. So, um, so what did you think about that movie? Yeah. Well, Joker dropped, uh, just over a week ago. It's, um, Sunday, October 13th now. And, um, you know, it's already made $155 million domestically and $152 million worldwide. That doesn't include China because China hasn't decided if they're going to give it the green light. Uh, it, mm. you know, th- they depict uh, a lot of activism in this movie, so probably not good for China's political climate if you are uh, part of the uh, CCP. So mm-hmm. I, I don't expect it to um, hit theaters in China anytime soon. Interesting. Um, according to Rotten Tomatoes, at the time of this recording, 68% of all critics liked Joker, 
and only 44% of top critics like Joker. So compare this to 2017's Lady Bird, uh, Lady, sorry, Lady Bird. Uh, and I think this is an overrated film that dragged, just in my opinion. What film? Lady Bird. Film? It, you know, it got a lot of buzz. Uh, Lady Bird. Very high uh, scores on Rotten Tomatoes. 99% of all critics liked it. 100% of top critics liked it. Meanwhile, 90% of the general moviegoing audience liked Joker, and 21% of general moviegoers agree with me on uh, Lady Bird. So, um, you know, my point isn't a crap all over Lady Bird. Rather, there are times, I think, when some movie critics seem to be completely out of sync with uh, general moviegoers. You know, in reality, critics don't really have much influence over which movies get made or who goes to see them. Yeah. But some of the reviews, like not most of them, but some are just maddening to read for me just dripping with elitism and refusing to at least attempt an understanding of why general moviegoers like the film and why we like Did you, have you read any have you read any on uh on joker yeah you know i i consider myself a general moviegoer and you know i i want to see more of these classic style character studies within the so-called comic book genre but um i i think studios are starting to take risks and and this is joker is certainly a reflection of that and, you know, so a lot of people probably wouldn't consider this a comic book film. And I, it tries to transcend that standard Marvel formula that's worked so well for Disney. The Disney Enterprise, you know, in the form of billions in revenue over the last decade. So anyway, yeah, let's, you know, I can give you a rundown on some of the criticisms. Yeah, why don't you, have you read any, are there any of these criticisms that you talk about that stand out to you? That, that you said are full of elitism and stuff? <laughs> Well, some of the most annoying criticisms to me, at least, are, you know, it inspires violence, like you said, promotes toxic mas masculine ag aggression, uh, it gives the wrong impression of mental illness, such as, you know, mental illness leads to violence. Uh, some people say it's right wing propaganda, because all of the have nots depicted in the film are portrayed as violence, uh, as violent, murderous radicals. Or it's a left wing propaganda film, because at its core, Joker is a story of socioeconomic deprivation and the failures of neoliberalism. So like, people are just like, casting all sorts of political opinions onto this film instead of like kind of talking about the character and what happens to this individual arthur fleck that is really uh kind of upsetting to me uh, and and in some ways resonated with me i don't know what that says about me as a person but a lot of people seem to agree that they like this film i think a lot of this criticism is at the end of the day kind of vapid like the reviewers didn't even watch the film it's like they'd already formed an opinion before they entered the theater you know, we, we can look at some specific critical reviews uh, yeah. if we want to. But, you know, this film made me feel... I, I really hope you go see it, Juan. I'd be interested in getting your take. Um, it, I thought it was disturbing, it was upsetting, it was uncomfortable, and it was funny all at once. Made me feel empathy for a psychopath. Made me feel <laughs> partially responsible for creating the Joker. And it made me reflect on the consequences of insufficient mental health resources such as joblessness, poverty, and stigma. And it did all of this within the Batman continuity, which is really cool, I think. And by the end of the film, I believe that this horribly sad person, Arthur Fleck, had truly become the villainous Joker of the Batman rogues gallery. So anyway, I, I really like this film. Hmm. Because of the political discourse surrounding Joker, um, they're members of the Academy saying that they're not going to vote for it. They're not even going to watch it. And I think that's pretty unfortunate. Um, if you don't like the film, that's perfectly fine. Even if you don't like the subject matter, the comic book references, the director, I think the Academy should still take it seriously. Who's, who's the director? Todd Phillips. It's, it's odd. Like he, he did, uh, the hangover movies did a uh, war dogs. And, you know, I don't think that's someone who would 
come to your mind if you're trying to think of you know like scorsese-esque character studies but you know out of left field he he made this movie Mm -hmm. um anyway so this got me thinking about the market's role in supporting the creation of art and yeah yeah theoretically in an open market anyone can make a film about anything given sufficient capital and the right friends and generally to get your film finance you've got to believe that there is demand for the type of film you want to create so it's no secret that over the past decade demand for comic book films has boomed and spending is a good indicator of what people want and people are spending billions of dollars on seeing comic book films so the studios are going to keep making them until spending patterns change. And this is great for like Warner Brothers and Marvel Studios, but probably bad for artists who want to make other types of film. So, you know, I think, you know, I think uh, from what you're saying, I'm interested in, it's interesting, it's an interesting little debate, right, around this movie, or big debate around this movie. But maybe an interesting way to approach it is through the experience of uh alexandra kluga as this as a filmmaker in the post-war period in germany and who's still active by the way still been making films since like the 60s 50s probably much the late 50s i think and did did uh, i read he was a student of adorno he was a he was a lawyer for the for the um basically for the academic department where Adorno, Theodore Adorno, the philosopher of aesthetics, art, and and critical theory uh, worked. And, you know, through through being a lawyer for that, uh, kind of a counsel for them, he became acquainted with them. But he's also a filmmaker, a writer. He's written, uh, you know, he's written fiction and nonfiction kind of theory theory works and he's also written a lot of fiction and he's made a lot of movies so he's a super productive interesting filmmaker and i think for him you know some of the the question of like why uh, first of all maybe approaching the question of the of the role of markets and the production of films right uh i think kluga would probably argue that uh the whole notion of understanding it in terms of supply and demand misunderstands the sort of relationship of the actual uh, capacity to produce, create film, make films, and you know the the watching of films because it's for him it's all about publics and who you know spectatorship practices, and so for him. Uh, these kind of films, mass market films, right, um, where there's a whole chain of of connections, or you could say a whole chain of uh, of productive units that are formed to create these forms of spectatorship. So you know, the mass market cinema film is shown at you know I don't know thousands of theaters nationwide who have contracts with. Uh, the producers of this film or the big, you know, who produces this film? Like Universal? Like who is it? Who's the, what's the, what's the movie studio behind it? Do you know? It's Warner Brothers. And oddly enough, Martin, Warner Brothers. Martin Scorsese was the original 
producer on this film and he left oh. and there's a, a something oh. he said recently that we can we should also talk about but yeah. um yeah so it's a huge company right warner brothers is a gigantic media conglomerate and they're putting the film out and of course they're going to get you know distribution rights at hundreds of theaters they ta- they poured tons of money into it i mean it's an industry right i mean and so and so in a in a standardized mass market setting uh people watch what's at the movie theater especially if it's advertised and especially it's if it if it calls attention to to things that they might be interested in to an extent right you have do have to interest the the public uh so the the appeal of the film I mean, Kleckwitz, Kluge, I think, would talk about how you have to understand the modes of production of filmmaking to understand the modes of spectatorship and the publics that have access to it and the publics that are created. So, you know, there's, for him, every, and he's and he's coming from, you know, he's, he's sort of building up on the work of Habermas on the public sphere, but the public is something that's produced and something that is created through practices of spectatorship. So people gathering together anywhere and doing something together in which they're, you know, in which the, there's a multitude of people observing each other or observing the same thing. That's a public, whether it's people watching TV at midnight, watching the same show or whether it's, you know, whether it's the the stereotypical housewife at noon watching Days of Our Lives as a public for whom, you know, uh, ads, ad producers are tailoring specific ads and, you know, the the funding for that kind of spectatorship is tied to to uh, to commercial ads and things like that. So, what he's interested in is is the way that connection between produ- a, a, a sort of industrial system of producing movies, which is based on making as much money as possible, and the whole chain of production, including the movie theaters, including the you know distribution rights, including uh, the the capacity to get the to get uh, spots put on television to in front of millions of eyeballs to get this movie advertised creates its own sort of its own sort of publics and also it's and also you know makes it hard for alternative forms of spectatorship to actually become um, practiced lived that might produce films that in some way this is what he's interested in give you a different uh give people a different outlet for fantasy that one that might be more directly tied to their sort of everyday lives and their actual experiences uh, so for him this would be a sign of a movie that in a, in a sense uh, the experience that ta- that's like expressed I, I, i'm not sure how he would uh, he would talk specifically about this movie but it'd be it's interesting i think to approach it because the experience that is shown in this movie the experience of like a alienated male who becomes violent is is something that has become like this this discussion point in all current culture right for obvious reasons um and so the 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 mode of depicting it i think is always interesting um but you we can't understand that i think without understanding the production system behind it and the kind of public spectatorship um the modes of spectatorship that it creates and through which people relate to film and things like that. I I, I saw that in the 1960s, Kluge helped found this independent um, Oberhausen group. Hope I'm saying yeah. that correctly, which, you know, to, to finance cheap cinema that focused on communicating intimate 
personal experiences from a German kind of proletarian perspective. And that kind of mm-hmm. developed into new, new German cinema, which doesn't seem like today it's completely taken hold. Uh, there's still, you know, the cinema is largely monopolized by foreign childish cinema. I think that's how he would characterize it. Probably, probably <laughs> right. Marvel films, but um, that was kind of the, the effort there. And then also built into, into that, there was that public sphere uh, effort trying to, you know, create the architecture for people to discuss uh, more kind of uh, experiential or visceral films after seeing them, which will hopefully create some kind of change in, in reality. Yeah. And for, uh, yeah. And, and there's another little thing I think that's important before we get back to Joker, which is for Kluge, there's both a theory of how to make film and what film portrays. And, and so that, so that's, that's specifically this notion that, uh, you know, sin- the image, like images in film, right? Film is, film is, a sp- is just a bunch of photographs basically lined up in a, in a, at fast, at a really fast pace, right? It's a bunch of individual images, but uh, with, with, uh, that are ran before us at a very fast pace, right? So he has this theory of sort of filmmaking, which is all about montage to an extent. And it's about sort of how you can, uh, using images and the power of like images that are that are lined up next to each other that might not necessarily follow one from the other, how you can kind of destabilize uh, people's perspective on the world and give them kind of a new perspective on the world rather than simply producing um, what, some kind of semblance of realist narratives that are meant to affect people in terms of in terms of some uh, traditional genre, let's say romance or whatever, right? So there's both the theory of of the way genre links to ma- modes of making film and its specific technology of cinema and what you can do with it to kind of, sh- in some ways, like like spark a critical perspective in people. Now. The problem is, it's uh, you know that's uh, Kluge is still interested in how can you get people's interest and attention and create new ways of spectatorship that allow people to reflect differently on their own lives uh, in a way that's not about creating kind of fantasy stories that are that are projections for for what he calls kind of a lack of experience. So, but this gets in the end, this gets to another thing, which is the question of the public sphere as such, right? Because for for Kluge, there's no unified public sphere. There's only there's uh there's kind of the semblance of a unified public sphere, but because we all have like our own different way of uh our so or sort of place in social relations, we're all doing different jobs. We're all kind of working in different things. We have different life experiences. Films that block this out, uh, you know, for him like the Hollywood product is about blocking out these sort of political dimensions of our lives. It's about creating these narratives that are in some ways compensating for our lack of everyday experience. And, and, and you could almost say that the problem here is really revolves around the idea of the public. Like what is the public, especially in a, in the context of media in which it's no longer publics are no longer small face to face relations, right? They're mediated by mass disseminating 
technological media like film, like internet, like social media, and you can never really know who gets a message, where they get it, and what they make of it. There's no way to control for that, the way you could in a in the traditional sort of ideal public sphere, of like the Greeks back in the polis or whatever. So there's there's a technology mediation dissemination of information. Um, Spec who spec you know spectatorship practices production who gets to produce images and who who gets eyeballs and then the kind of narratives that are produced for him are all tied together as questions of of publics and creating publics and who can and how can you think of cinema differently right so he's really not interested in like traditional narrative cinema he's trying to he's trying to think how can I use cinema because cinema like any art form affects people right it sort of has reactions, so his interest is not in like a kind of in kind of kind of realism through the cinema, or a sort of fake realism of narratives where you have heroes and this and that yeah. that stand up to some like ideal of of what a hero is, but in, in sort of destabilizing that and sort of getting people to think about their everyday lives. The, uh, the, the, this a, is this is a, a a a broad issue with art in general, though. You know, one of my favorite. You know, one of my in introductions into philosophy, and, and I think a lot of philosophers wouldn't consider him a philosopher, but it was Albert Camus' The Myth of Sisyphus, mm -hmm. and then along with that, his um, novel The Stranger. And um, yeah, yeah. And The Myth of Sisyphus is is a book about why you don't kill yourself in a meaningless universe, and that was extremely mm -hmm. compelling to me. But I was also in like a certain frame of mind, able to. Uh, ingest what he was saying and, and kind of um, understand the, uh, you know, his absurdist logic. But I wouldn't give that book to certain individuals who might not be able to process his arguments in the same way. So if you put art, or in that case, um, I think I would consider it a, a, um, a, a form of art, um, the myth of Sisyphus, but it's also, you know, yeah. prose with, you know, has arguments. Right, right. Um, but you wouldn't want to make that argument to someone who is maybe, you know, contemplating suicide or something, but, but it's very hard to control for, you know, through cinema or, um, through, you know, just like a, a blog post on the internet or a post on Reddit or something. You don't know who's going to see that. I don't know how you control for that. So how do you deal with this question of, you know, there, there may be ideas that we want to get out there but not everyone is going to react to it in the way we might want them to. Um, we have, you know, ongoing concerns about radicalization, self-radicalization through social media. Uh, and yeah. then also kind of the, the impacts of, um, you know, people who just spend a lot of time on social media and come across things that um, they're not going to process yeah. in a positive way. And it results in um, depression and self-harm and we're seeing upticks in suicide. So how, how, how do you, you know, reconcile this idea of public sphere with um you know the the need to create dangerous art or the want to create dangerous art and share that with the yeah. world like and that well you know and and that thing we read you know we read a little interview with kind of like to just think about this whole question with with uh, about where, where kluge was being interviewed and he says something really interesting he talks about how public's a public sphere would be a public that's self-conscious right that has experience for him experience what does experience mean it means that you can you can unite past present and sort of imagine a different uh, your own sort of a future that you'd want to produce or create so but to do that 
to be able to unite past and present, you have to have real experience. And real experience means, for someone like Kluge, from what I can understand, means you're able to put these things together uh, in a coherent sense that links directly to your life and it's political and that you're able to imagine a different future in, com in commonality with other people. So I think ra for him, we could almost invert all these critiques and this discussion around this film because what's What's interested is what's what's problematic. I think from the from the perspective of Kluga is not this is an irresponsible film, because because that's not the point. The point is the point is, and it's not like a film. Like film always has effects on people, and if the effect on a film is to get you know for someone to be radicalized or for someone to like not be whatever it is, that's not. It's the it's the modes of producing film. The chain, the industrial chains of production of producing film, the modes of spectatorship that are produced that are kind of structurally linked to people's uh, public life or lack of public life. So, for instance, here's a maybe a better example: if if uh, if uh, there are, you know, let's say you spent all, you're just sort of cut off from the world, and you don't really have any kind of public existence. You just Maybe you, uh, I don't know, maybe you, you're a young person who's just kind of alienated and you spend all day in your room watching YouTube videos. And you're watching like, you know, white nationalist videos. And then the algorithms work in a sense uh, because YouTube is all about catching ads or because of whatever way it has structured its, its specific uh, algorithms. It works so that it just shows you more of the same, right? It leads you to all the most the most uh, the kind of conspiratorial and nasty white nationalist videos. The production of, sub of the subject there, the production of the person through media interaction that leads to this kind of ever more disconnection from public life, a disconnection from real experience and the capacity to put together the past, our history, our present, and, and this kind of, this kind of mind, this kind of, uh, falling into paranoia for for Kluge it would be a really interesting case of like the way publics are produced by specific forms of media technologies and of spectatorship practices that are linked to questions of do you have a capacity to form a common perspective perspective on the world um through some shared spectatorship practices just i don't know discursive practices and so forth um, do you, or do you belong to a public sphere that's self-conscious, in a sense, or do you believe? Do you belong to something? Do you are you kind of trapped in in this media sphere? So, so the movie itself maybe more problematic than the movie. I know it's like debates of whether it's a critique of neoliberalism or it's, whether it's a is is it's it's also interesting to see the way it kind of channels comic book a comic book thing to to the pick up a very contemporary theme and put it in a narrative uh, that it's very hard for people to categorize as either leftist or, or right wing or something. And that maybe points to the the difficulty of making movies that are narrative, that are like, you know, realistic narrative that purport to have a political yeah. theme. I and I, I don't know that this because, movie hey, people can people I don't can know take that this your movie could have been made if they didn't slap the Joker brand on it because it it has some kind of very difficult like plot points 
where like it's it's certainly not something we've seen in any comic book film uh, to date or, or over the last decade since like Marvel took off. So um, I, I think part of the film's success is that you know they did this like very intimate character study, which a lot of people are finding compelling. But in order to get them to the theater in the first place, they had to market it and brand it in a certain way. And the way they did that is by <laughs> dropping it into the Batman continuity. And at, from like a capitalist standpoint, it's it's pretty brilliant. Yeah. Well, and that's the and that and and then the tradition of Kluger for them for you know he the way he he would understand it it's an industrial production system like Hollywood is all about making money at the end of the day so you're not going to make mo- movies unless they're going to make money and your interest is in making narrative films that pe- that you're going to get uh, people out to see and so whether there's a margin there of movement in terms of producing stuff that's whatever I don't know creates a different perspective for people uh, on their reality is a question. But for, for uh, you could see how Kluge's whole critique of how this film is a Hollywood product. For him, it might be a really compelling film in many ways, right? In terms of narrative and what it portrays. But at the end of the day, it's it sticks to a kind of realistic narrative uh, way of telling stories, a very conventional cinematic way of using cinema as a medium instead of it being experimental and uh, and because it sticks to kind of a realistic narrative people have different perspectives on whether it's you know what what its message is and so, so he's not so much I think someone like Louis would say well it's not so, I'm not so interested in what's more what's less interesting is what it's supported messages because the fact of the matter is like different people are going to have different reactions to it different people as we see in different people are going to read it in different ways it's more interesting to think about how the it's a product of a specific way of producing and and consuming film which because it's not uh it it's obviously created a conversation which is interesting though and that's i think something that maybe would be interesting to bring up right the way that the the way that the internet has become almost a a field of resonance for discussing these kind of products uh, which is which is its own set of publics that discuss like a film's merits and not so like the traditional critic that you were talking about is also becomes less important right because they're not the ones mediating people's experience of the film it's people are discussing in like Twitter and stuff like that right yeah yeah but that gets I don't know that that makes it really so that brings up the question of I think of like can you make political film that's like realistic narratively realistic within the the hollywood context and maybe you can but like uh but there's a a whole bunch of questions arise i think of of you know people's different interpretations and how they're actually able to discuss these and create again something like a public sphere sure Um, well i'll say the first thing that i I went with a large group of people and uh the first thing we did Did uh, yeah we we went over to the uh, neighboring restaurant and discussed the movie for an hour and a half and I haven't done that yeah. in a while, actually. It's something I grew up yeah. doing, but uh, I don't have many opportunities to do that. And this movie, like people just want to talk about it. So I think that's a good thing. And whether or not the conversations that people are having are constructive or helpful from a larger social perspective, I don't know. Um, but but that was my experience with it. And I, I think we should address um, Martin Scorsese here uh, and on comic book films in general. Because yeah. after this movie came out, and uh, I thought it was ironic that he originally was the producer on this film, and it very much feels like kind of a Scorsese film. Uh, 
it, it's uh, Todd Phillips has specifically said that it was highly inspired by his uh, Scorsese's film Taxi Driver, mm-hmm. almost like uh, too much. Like the the imagery is very um, similar at times. And I, yeah. I just recently watched Taxi Driver, so it was fresh in my my mind when I saw Joker, and I really like that film as well. But um, what Scorsese said, uh, I think it was in Empire Magazine uh, a week ago, he, he said, you know, I don't see them. I tried, you know, but that's not cinema. Honestly, the closest I can think of them, as well made as they are with actors doing the best they can under these circumstances, <laughs> uh, is, uh, is theme parks. So he's comparing them to theme parks. Um, and he, he goes on to say, it isn't the cinema of human beings trying to convey emotional, psychological experiences to another human being. And I, I mean, I, I certainly see what he's saying as someone who does enjoy yeah. the theme park of um, of a comic book film. Most, not all of them, but, um, you know, I liked the last yeah. Avengers film. But uh, I, 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 re- I really do think he has a point here. Um, you know, the problem is, uh, one, people aren't signaling with their wallets that they want to see other types of films. Not to the tune of billions of dollars that every Avengers movie makes now. Um and, and, you know, I, I don't know if Joker uh, exactly fits this criticism, uh, but uh, Kluga in the interview we, we read made a, a similar comparison. He compared, um, you know, movies like Rambo to, Rome, uh, to, to Roman circus with men like overpowering large animals. <laughs> and he says Rambo yeah. is the stylization of the feelings of omnipotence of an eight-year-old. Cinema has slid down <laughs> into kids' pictures. Uh, and and you know this this is a consequence of feeling of, of people feeling overburdened in society. It's kind of like exteriorizing into fantasy, yeah. Because we're suffering, yeah. So there's a lot to unpack there. But I don't know if yeah. Scorsese was was trying to make that political point that Kluge is. Well, I that, yeah, I don't, and I think that's interesting that uh, there's these perils, but there's also like some differences because because Kluge would say the whole. The whole machinery of production of producing movies that both Scorsese and this film belong to, right? Which are about like, which are about producing um, films within the Hollywood system uh, to try to get as many eyeballs in front of it to sell, basically to to sell a commodity, a film as something that can make money. Um, th- that for. Uh, that for Kluge, in a sense, I think already already that's that's sort of the main that would be the main interest to him, right? Because um, second, you were, you go you were saying something, you know, if people if people are voting with their wallets, but again, uh, for for Kluge, it's really this is a he's really interested in the idea of fantasy, right? In producing fantasy, fantasy is something that you can like produce but also something that people that people have in their everyday lives and that they that depend on and that has like a utopian dimension to it like a utopian drive um and so if people's everyday lives are sort of like just are terrible right if their jobs are completely unfulfilling and they just and they're the 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 landscapes they live in are completely unfulfilling, and they have no public dimension, no life, no community, no whatever. They they need a compensation for this, and the compensation is is the product the production of fantasies, fantasies that are produced for them, and these fantasies can be films, 
you know, in the Hollywood system. I think that's how, that's why he talks about Rambo that way. That's the way he sees it. But he would probably say that Scorsese's films fall within that same category of kind of fantasies. Right. Right. These are fantasy films and there's nothing wrong with fantasy, but it's the kind of fantasy that he's interested in. These are fantasies about male, whatever, you know, male centered stories of assertion of power of, of whatever. And, uh, and they're very much tailored to that kind of idea of the what who the who the hero is and who the anti-hero is and things like that. So so for him, it's the kind of public that we have, the public sphere and the capacity for counter public spheres. He talks, he has this his concept counter public spheres. It's it's not only that there's there can never be one whole unified stable public sphere because we're we kind of come at the world from different perspectives of life, different jobs, different functions in society. And so to have like, pretend that we could have a one unified public sphere is sort of a, an illusion, he thinks. And uh, ways of producing what different people's like everyday lives, um, if you're, if you have experience and, and you can sort of relate your everyday life to, to history and to a possible future, you would be less interested, he thinks, in like kind of like just fantasy films that that seem like projections of what you're not getting in everyday life rather than some kind of some kind of spectatorship that would be more tied into your everyday life. And so for him the the, the capacity to produce films or forms of spectatorship that are tied to people's everyday lives uh, that really talk to them in a way that and you could think of this maybe even in within you know it works within the Hollywood system things like films for African Americans, right? This is a counter public. This is not a. This is not the what we would call the hegemonic kind of the majority, the the main public in the United States. But it's an important constituency of part of the population that has its own that has developed its own uh, that in history has had its own public spectatorship practices, whether that's through music or whether that's through. Uh, but that has come into the the sphere of cinema through films tailored specifically to African Americans. That. Um, uh, you you know, for example, Black Panther might be an interesting case to talk in that context. How much, to what extent, can that be co-opted and created into a, into a, into its own sort of production studio film? Right? Oh, we want to get the African American population to watch, to watch, uh, to watch these films. Right? Right. We're gonna make we're gonna make a film that's all about like an African American superhero, and that, and that can that can draw a whole population of people who hadn't been part of that base of watching Marvel films. But is this really a movie that talks about the reality of kind of life of African American people and the things that they face and the and does it does it does it co-opt in them and try to bring them into the public's into a, like a illusion of some unified public sphere or does it really create uh, a space where that counter public sphere can kind of resonate and understand itself better and understand its role within um like get a critical perspective of of its of its uh, own experience in kind of the United States. So these questions for him are really about, to an extent, I think they're about. Uh, I think you would see this debate what he what Scorsese was saying, and he would agree to an extent that this that this that all, uh, superhero films are kind of like fantasy. Uh, they're kind of fantasy for people who to lack real experience, right? They're kind of like projections of fantasy for people who can't sort of have concrete everyday experience um, to an extent. Whether that's fair or not, I think that might be, it might be fair to say that he would, he might think that way. But, uh, 
but so would so would so would Scorsese's films, like you know about gangsters and about things like that, right? He's he's still they, doing that. They them. might uh, tap in. Uh, Irishman, you know, he he faced a lot of challenges to getting this like three or four hour epic film made that Netflix three hours long. Yeah, that, and you know he he he's got Robert De Niro and a whole bunch of kind of like the the older. Uh, gangsters that, that always showed up in his films and he had to de-age yeah. them so yeah. he could finally make this movie but it, it took um <laughs> many years for this to happen and um you know netflix finally bought the rights for it and, and financed it and it cost way more than he projected and now he's trying to get them in theaters but because netflix owns the rights um and it's going to go live uh, when yeah. the movie would potentially show up in theaters they're refusing to show yeah. it now so there's there's huh. like a, a um a a market uh issue there because you know it's not going to see the light of day for many people who who see their films in theater still yeah the the irish man um it's it's one of these movies that i think kluga would would criticize in the same way Um, but but it's still you know struggling to um have the prominence that scorsese would might might want it to have yeah so uh, and and we haven't really i don't think we've gotten in depth too much in the question of like well what kind of how could you make films using cinema in a way that uh would be sort of a different way of using the cinema maybe to create a more critical perspective and do would people really want to watch those kind of films um how would that work who would finance them how could you create spaces for that we haven't really gone into that very much but the stratification of publics is really interested through media, right? What you just the example you just brought up, for instance, the people who watch Netflix, the people who watch HBO, the people who watch whatever, right? Like, uh, you could talk. I'm sure you could talk about that as a as a sort of like the market reacting and creating its own platforms for these different publics. But you could also talk about it as the market reacting and creating its own industrial production systems to tailor it for the for different publics but producing producing for them sort of uh fantasy supplements that tailor themselves to their to their life but that don't really touch upon maybe their everyday experience in the larger public sphere sense of of let's say the the nation and how they fit in as a public uh, so but there's always a margin i think it's not clear cut if you look at it from kluga's perspective you can have a very you could have a very sort of like traditional Hollywood product, and it could it could probably it could possibly be this kind of like film that sparks an effect on people that is uh, you know that is that uh, in some way enhances their experience. But the question I think the structural question for Google is how is experience structured in terms of a relationship between your private and your public life, right? And how is how are media and how are ways of receiving media structured by that relationship between public and private work and home um who owns you know the 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 equipment and the theaters who can distribute all these different questions that are really i think important to think of as because cinema is not just like the stuff that shows up it's a whole set of practices of making images that go from independent movies to to uh, di- you know, different production studios and overseas in different places, Bollywood. You know, German cinema was an example of people trying to make cinema outside of the 
outside of the pro- the production for for profit system, right? Right. It was a it was a people trying to make experimental film in a context that where they wouldn't have to wor- think primarily about how do we make money and how do we and do we have to go through the the conduits of the industrial production system of cinema of Hollywood or of you know whatever else, right? Um, we uh, we do in the states have the National Endowment for the Arts, which was founded yeah. by Lyndon B. Johnson in, in 1964. And I guess the idea behind this was to direct government uh, funds to to promote the growth of art across the nation. I don't know um, how successful it's been. I, I know a lot of the challenges here. You know, in, in famously in, the, in 1989, there was a Christian lobby that criticized the NEA for promoting anti-Christian propaganda. You know, you're always going to have when you try to direct taxpayer funds in this way, you're going to have demographics who don't like the the kind of art that's being created and they're going to lobby against it so i don't know um how you know from if you try to take um direct resources to artists from a centralized standpoint how you avoid those kinds of issues i don't think you have those kinds of issues in the open market but you still run up against um you know the markets um alienating certain kinds of um, art and maybe not promoting the right kinds of conversations. Yeah. Well, I mean, and this gets to the, I think for Kluge, the representation is a battlefield, right? Representation, just like the political re- representation, we can't like, we can't segment it and block it off from politics, right? Like here's entertainment and here's politics. Here's where we come and talk and argue about things and have arguments about the way we should organize our societies and pass laws and structure market or or whatever structure workplaces and um and here's here's entertainment like for him representation is a battlefield because representation is what we do not only in rhetoric right when we're trying to convince people of to believe something or to support something but it's also the way we we perceive reality so these media structure the way we perceive reality or they structure the way we think of entertainment or free time or things like that. So for him, you could think about how this this question of what can be shown, what kind of thin films can be made, what you can do with cinema is just a continuation of politics by other means, in a sense. Uh, which brings up, I think, a bigger question about I think a more philosophical question, maybe to an extent, of what you know, what is art. Um, yeah. And what is the role of art and things like that? And we could talk about that too. Uh, but the fact of the matter is for, for, for Kluge, Hollywood is producing films to make money. And so it's never, you know, its margin of what it thinks of in terms of what representation is and what it does is always going to be tailored within an industrial production system that at the end of the day is, is interested in producing, yeah, good stories, sure, but also stories that sell. Yeah. And within a specific way of distributing film and not necessarily stories that or way or productions or films that might spark uh, different ways of looking at reality and different ways of thinking about reality or different or and so forth. Right. Whereas really, if you think about the kind of cinema that Klug is interested in, it's not a cinema that argues for a position. It's a cinema that changes perspective. And those are two different things, I think, in terms of thinking of the political dimension of cinema. One is like propaganda and one is film that it somehow sparks 
in the spectator a different perspective on reality that would be a critical perspective. And a lot of people would, a lot of people I think particularly would disdain this kind of look at, you know, what art should be. They should think, oh no, art should be some kind of like contemplating the human condition or contemplating beauty or something. It shouldn't be political one way or another. Um, I, I think it's clear that the purpose of art is to serve the body politic because that's what Plato said. And it's no coincidence that we're going to release our first episode on Plato next week. So I think that's a good segue. <laughs> that would be interesting. Yeah. No. Um, but I think we need to have, a, I think maybe next or next time we have this discussion episode, about cinema, yeah. we should focus a little more on this question of art, right? And what is the role of art and what can art be political without becoming propaganda? What is it? Why would we want to have a, art that creates a more uh, critical perspective rather than art just sort of like feeds you narratives that sort of, Maybe, you know, the way Kluge will say it again, if I'm parroting his argument, it's they're compensating for your, for the fact that you don't get representations that give you a more, that give you a more fuller sense of reality and experience. Um, uh, So you see what the argument is there. It's not, you can't, the argument is not, we should produce propaganda as art, but we should produce art that somehow gets people to sort of like, in a sense, have a deeper, fuller perspective of their own kind of uh, reality, in a sense. And for him, like something like Hollywood is is just structurally dis- designed to produce fantasies that are not that are less and less tied to reality, in a sense. Whether you know whether that's true or not, I think we can see in a film like this that there are connections to reality. Um, and so maybe there's there's a way to critique Kluge's perspective from the joker right yeah i mean if you have a more pessimistic view of the human condition then it really doesn't matter how power is organized in society the base human condition is always suffering so you could argue that (laughs) it doesn't matter what you do in reality we're always going to need this rambo-esque fantasy to feel good about ourselves Hmm. i hope that's not true but I also like Rambo. I like. I do like. I like seeing Sylvester Stallone blowing shit up. So, as much as I want to see this public sphere grow, I wouldn't want that to go away either. You wouldn't want Rambo. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's. It, um, I'm not gonna go into the. I'm not gonna go into. So I would. I would have in these kind of discussions. I would avoid going into a discussion of like, well, this is just bad art or like, right? But. Um, uh, I think it's really interesting to to think with Kluge and think, well, what would a what would what would different a different sort of sphere of spectatorship related to things like images look like? Um, what are alternatives for? And I think in some ways the interesting thing about new media like internet, YouTube, things like that, is just think about the possibilities that it's created that are really interesting for for creating new publics, right? I think about um, videos of people like showing things that they buy, right? You watch these videos? The multi-level marketing schemes? No, that no, one. the ones where people are like buy stuff and they just show you, they're called oh, like yeah. open box, yeah, yeah, open yeah. box. And they, you can find it for every any product out there. Or videos about people who are showing you how to care for plants in their house. Or videos... This is this is a really odd one, but someone showed me like a video of this 
this person who just like his whole YouTube channel is his grandma in somewhere in India, like cooking. Right. And apparently, well, this great. Gets, like each video, yeah. each video gets that. like a million. Each video gets like two million views. Yeah. So that's a public, right? That's a public right there. That's people who are who are seeing reality through that video, and that's a lot of people. That's a lot of eyeballs. And for advertisers, that's a lot of potential. That's a market. But for someone like Luke, that's that's a that's those are people who see something in that in those videos that resonates with their experience. That's not going through the production model of Hollywood, but a different production model, and that creates different narratives and different stories and different ways of channeling uh, fantasy. So, so maybe you know, rather than thinking like Rambo is a product of its of its time, eighties industrial production system in Hollywood, kind of like. Uh, creating stories that are you know just sort of like entertainment in a kind of in a kind of popcorn sense right well i mean i, I don't know if if we want to put like cooking with grandma up on the big screen but we, we, we can still <laughs> enjoy it from like the comfort of our of our computers at home or or tablets or or phones well you know i mean that it, again the, the question is what are the what is a big screen for and why why watch certain things in the big screen when you could be watching others right yeah. Uh, who owns the big screens? How are, who makes money from the big screens? Uh, what kind of movies are put on the big screens? Because you could go watch, you know, you could show anything on there. You could. My dad, my dad loves to go watch uh, theater and opera on the big on the movie screens. But of course, that's a that's a smaller public, which manages to make it in there because there's a whole industrial production model too of making quote unquote high art. Yeah. For people who still like that stuff, mostly old people. <laughs> well, I, I just saw um, Hitchcock's uh, North by Northwest on the big screen yeah. for the first time because yeah. uh, I happen to live by uh, a theater that that does those kinds of things, mm-hmm. and uh, it was great. And it was a much older audience, and the the guy next to us was like, "Hey, like, no exploding uh, cars, no uh, special effects and CGI." <laughs> he was just glowing. He was so delighted with this film. <laughs> But you know, it it very much you know you can see the um, uh, the stamp of this film across pop culture that it it kind of helped um, develop a lot of the 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 Hollywood films that uh, Kluga probably uh, doesn't view as as um, constructive from a public sphere perspective. Yeah. Well, Hitchcock's really interesting because Hitchcock was a master of rethinking the form of cinema as it relates to effects on people right things like things like what kind of how could you play with with people's emotions really at fear and uh how could you like suspense right and so that's a gets to another dimension which we haven't really talked about that much but Klug is really interested in film as a film and media in general in the way it produces not only it creates effects in modes of reaction, modes of thinking and seeing and feeling, even, but uh, it can reconfigure like your your senses. Basically, film can reconfigure the way you look at the world and understand and experience the world. Um, so there's a famous there's this famous sort of like story which I think has been proved wrong. But the famous story the story is that back you know one of the first films that was shown was. Uh, with people sitting in a movie theater was this, they used to show these short films back in the day, right? Uh, people would sit down for like seven, I don't know, four or five movies that were really short. And one of them, and these were just kind of gimmick pieces because this was the early days of cinema. And so this, one of the films was a film of just us train coming towards 
the screen. And the the kind of story is that goes that as the as the train came towards the screen, people got up with their chairs and like ran out of the theater, <laughs> right? Because they were like, "Whoa, what, you know, this is going to come through the screen. It's going to it's going to run us over." So, but the fact the fact of the matter is, whatever you make of that story, whether it's true, or, I think I've read some uh, film criticism that his, historians go back and they like they kind of prove that it's kind of a exaggerated story. Cinema did change people's perspective of time and space. And of the kind of of the temporalities of of life and of modern life and of the connections between uh, different you know different scales in modern life, and so cinema keeps doing that. And uh, for that's another dimension of Kluge's interest in the kind of production models. The production models create subjects. The movies that are put up create personalities that demand more things of the same or. Or so forth, right? Um, we create subjects through modes of spectatorship. Um, so, in, Kluge is interested in different publics, different ways of spectating that can produce different forms of subjectivity, too. Yeah, and you know, a, a lot of these um, comic book heroes were created uh, in in the midst of the kind of World War II era. So, they're kind of a reflection of that American yeah. exceptionalism. Right. And I wonder, you know, if that history is brought forward, if it's still reflected in the way that we see our superheroes on the big screen today. Yeah. Um, but, you, you know, you do see studios showing the flaws in our character, our superhero characters more, more and more. I mean, the Chris Nolan Batman films were a little bit more um, human in the way they portrayed Bruce Wayne. Um, yeah. Although I, I'd like to see Bruce Wayne get the Joker treatment eventually <laughs> but but I'm, right. I'm sure i'm sure that history still shines through and still has an influence on on, on movie viewers yeah yeah i mean I, I bet in some ways and this is a question that i right now wouldn't be equipped to answer but but we talked about this and and i think in these these superhero films the kind of interest that they've drawn the way that they've been tied into a especially in the last, I guess, 10, 15 years into this big production model of putting one after another and how well they've done. Definitely, and in the moment, our political moment, I think it, there's definitely a correlation or a, at least an interesting connection to be made between our kind of moment of crisis or apparent crisis, political, economic, I don't know, systemic, and the appeal of these kind of films that, that uh, draw on this specific notion of heroic action right i mean we could unpack that more but these are these are old these are now almost like old uh very culturally ingrained uh, figures and narratives about heroes and how they triumph and things like that yeah that bracket a lot of questions that are more systemic and structural just because they're not in, they're not about that they're about like is does the superhero pull through are they brave enough are they tough enough are they whatever well i I think uh hopefully uh you know if if you're a listener you like this conversation let us know and we're gonna we uh, we both love movies so i'm sure we'll have more of these conversations definitely oh we gotta keep talking about movies i love movies yeah um I just sounded like a five-year-old. I love movies, <laughs> uh, but we should keep talking about film because it's 
and media because uh, it's really it's it's communication, it's information, right? Uh, yeah, it's another media, it's another dimension of it. But well, as, as we move into this, um, as we move into this series on strategic communication, I happen to know people who are paid to write uh, screenplays with. Mm. Uh, kind of propaganda built into it to sell things. <laughs> It'd be cool yeah. to have one of those people come and talk to us and tell us like, how does that work? You know, like I, I might, you... I may be able to organize that. So that's Let's certainly something to look forward to. Let's do it. Awesome. Cool. Well, okay. So we're going to talk about strategic. We have a, a three series coming out on strategic communication, and um, in the in the meantime, we're going to do more of these uh, reflection pieces. And uh, if you like it, you know, let us know. You can uh, email us at panopticpod at gmail.com. And uh, please remember to um, give, us a, give us a like or give us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to uh, podcasts. That'd be great. Yep. And uh, check out our Patreon page if you get the chance. Uh, I think there's a link on our website, right, Jason? Yep. Yeah, everything's on the website, panopticpod.com. Good. Well, it's been uh, it's been fun chatting with you about movies this Sunday morning before I spend the rest of the day cleaning my house and grading papers for a class I got tomorrow. That sounds great. Well, I wish you all the best. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. All right. All right, man. Have a good Sunday. You too. Do you enjoy what you're hearing on Panoptic Pod? Is the application of philosophy, media theory, and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful? If so, please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website, panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment. Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.